When you think about what's going on in the New Testament and what we get when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, the story of the political and religious history of Israel starts obviously with the presentation in the book of Genesis and the idea of promise and covenant that reaches back to Abraham in which we have promise, covenant, and election and we also have certain practices that are going to make the people of Israel unique and which are going to also show up with importance when we get to the New Testament. So we have on the one hand, if you will, promises that God is going to make a special people out of the seed of Abraham and that through that seed the world's going to be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant, of course. We have, so we have the promises coming out of the Abrahamic covenant. We have promises coming out of the Davidic covenant that there is going to be an everlasting dynasty through which God is going to work. And we have promises later on in the history of Israel in the new covenant that God is going to write the law on the hearts of the people and forgive their sins. So this promise background helps to define the spiritual hope of the people of Israel. And we go all the way back to Genesis for it. We also have, however, not just promises, but we have the creation of a people. These people have a land and they have a law. Moses gives the law, which introduces the Mosaic Covenant. That produces a holy people whose lifestyle is distinct and comes with distinct practices. They have a distinct temple that they worship at. And it's only, and there's only supposed to be one temple where they are supposed to worship. Very much in contrast with much of the rest of the religious environment in which Israel functioned. Most religious uh, institutions of the time had multiple locations for worship. So there was to be uh, one temple. There was to be a special diet related to clean and unclean foods. This also was distinctive. There was to be a special rite of, how I say this, incorporation circumcision which was to indicate one's association with the covenant people and then there were there was a special calendar the most distinctive feature of which was the sabbath that on the seventh day they were to rest and gather together and worship. And th this combination of features made the life of Israel distinct. And if one engaged in these practices, they could easily be identified by the time we get to the New Testament as a, Jew as a Jewish person, as a member of Israel, etc. So we've got promises, we've got people, and we've got practices. that mark out the people of God. And this is going to become important to the New Testament. 
Because when the New Testament moves beyond Israel, begins to reach out to the Gentiles, questions are going to arise about these practices that are rooted in the law that came from Moses. Because of 2,000 years of pretty good public relations on the part of the Christian church, we think about this backwards. We're used to thinking about the fact that the law has been done away with, or at least its uh, fulfillment has been reached in Jesus Christ, and so we don't think about this as a practical and social problem. But when you're coming out of it, when you're moving through a religious tradition that for centuries has practiced certain things, and then you get adjustments, whatever causes them, that raises all kinds of questions. In the New Testament, we will find ourselves in the midst of, a, of one of these periods of adjustment. And it's difficult for people. People like their religious traditions. Okay? I don't have to make that point to you. Just look at how people choose music in church and you will understand it. So people like their religious roots. And so what we get emerging in this period is a tension, if I can say it that way, between law and promise. The law being given, but by the time we get to the new covenant, we know we've been told that there are going to be things done in order to make the law more effective than it's been since Moses gave it. And then we've got these promises that extend blessing not just to Israel, but into all the world. And how's that going to work? In the midst of all this, we have a developing sense of kingship, hope that eventually emerges focused on the Davidic line in one form. Actually, when we come to the New Testament, we've got about three or four different forms of Messianic hope, but the dominant Messianic hope was the idea that the Messiah would come through a dynastic line connected to David which reflects both national ideals. We want David to deliver the nation from the nations. At least in its Jewish expression, that's the way it was often expressed. As well as universalistic ideals. That one day this figure would bring peace to the entire world. And those are also in tension. So we have a tension between law and promise. We have a tension between national and universal hopes tied to the figure to come. Add into all that, by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, the division that has emerged within the people of God between Israel and Judah, between the ten tribes and the two, between the north and the south, and in this case, the South are the good boys. You see an alternate cult, an alternate form of worship established at Bethel and Dan. You've got the captivity of the North as the nations begin to overrun the people in 722 and 721. And you've got prophetic warnings that come from the end of the law that says that if you are unfaithful to this law, 
going back to the time of Moses, what's going to happen? You tell me. If you're unfaithful to the law, what's going to happen? You're going to be judged. How? Well, it's not so much that you're driven out of your land as you'll be taken over. Okay? Now, that's important. That's important to the New Testament. Because you've been theologically told in your revelation that if you are no longer working as an independent theocracy and there are nations in your midst, what's wrong? You've been unfaithful. So how are you going to try and fix that problem? Okay? What's the solution to the unfaithfulness? Repentance. What? Repentance. Repentance. Okay, and what's the repentance going to do? Well, you might put a king back on the throne, but the problem is you got nations in your in your backyard. See, you guys are thinking way too practically. Okay? What are the first five books of the Old Testament about? The law. How are you going to be faithful? You're going to keep the law. Okay, this is not rocket science. Right? You don't need a degree in third-level calculus to figure out what's going on here. So if there are nations in your backyard and you've theologically been told that if you lose your theocracy it is because you have been unfaithful to the law, then the way to fix the problem is to become faithful to the law. To repent and become faithful to the law or wait for God's deliverance. One or the other. And in many minds, those two things will go together. We're going to wait for God's deliverance and we will become faithful to the law again. So one of the things that I'm saying to you is is that in the backdrop, we have the issue of a God-established theocracy, which is what Moses brought with the law. But when that gets overrun by the nations, that's a reflection of unfaithfulness that needs to be dealt with by the people and by its leadership. This will help to explain to you why the nations or the Gentiles are viewed with such ambivalence, if not hostility, by the Jews. Their presence and associations with them are a sign of judgment. Not to mention the cultural pressure of having these nations in your backyard, what it's doing to your distinctive practices and the pressure on your distinctive practices. Towards the end of this period, we get the new covenant in part because one of the solutions in the promise of dealing with this is that God is going to have to work to change his people. And he's going to have to do it from within. That it's not merely going to be an external restructuring that's required, but an internal restructuring as well. <coughs> 